You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Welcome to lecture number three in our Old Testament course, Theology of the Old Testament. In this lecture, I'm going to cover the books of Ruth, of 1 and 2 Samuel, and 1 and 2 Kings. First of all, let's take up the book of Ruth. Ruth is a brief book of four chapters, kind of an interlude between the book of Judges and 1 and 2 Samuel, where we get into the beginnings of the monarchy and the kingship in Israel. But it's a delightful book, which probably comes from around the 10th to the 8th century. And the book of Ruth deals with the universal reach of God's love for all mankind. There's a tendency in Israel to be particular that God loves only the Israelites. But this book indicates the universal reach of God's love to all mankind. That's a story about this Naomi, this Israelite woman, her husband, in a time of famine. They leave Israel and they go over to the land of Moab. In the land of Moab, these were traditional enemies of the Israelites. But while they were there, and they're pagans, they're not Israelites, while they're there, she has two sons, and these two sons marry two Moabite women. One of them is Ruth, and the other one is Oprah. Now, after about 10 years, the two sons die, her husband dies, and so Naomi decides to go back to uh, Israel over by Bethlehem, and she tells these two daughters-in-law to go back to their families. But Ruth says, no, I don't want to go back to my family. I want to go with you, where you go. I want to go and be in your land. I want to worship your God. Your God is my God. So the two women go back to Israel, and when they get back around near Bethlehem, they are, of course, have nobody to support them, and they're starving to death. Naomi has a relative, and this relative, Boaz, has a field and grows grain and so forth. And so she sends Ruth out to glean whatever she can that's left over from the harvesting of the crops and to bring that back. And since she's related to Boaz, this is permitted by the Jewish law. So then Boaz takes a kind of liking to Ruth. So Naomi suggests to Ruth that she make herself available to her cousin, Boaz, that she make herself available as a wife. So this is uh, acceptable to Ruth. And this Boaz, B-O-A-Z, he's interested in Ruth. Now, according to the law, there's another relative that has a right to marry her if he wants to, but the other one is questioned. He's not interested. So the result is that Boaz, who's a wealthy man, marries Ruth, and from this wedding comes a child called Obed, O-B-E-D. And Obed becomes the father of Jesse, and Jesse becomes the father of David because David is one of the sons of Jesse. So what we have here is like a historical romance. To what extent it is historical, because it indicates the ancestry or genealogy of King David, which is very important in the Bible. Here you have a case of Ruth, who is not an Israelite. She's a pagan, but she 
goes over and joins the Israelite people and becomes the great-grandmother of David, the great David, who's the king of Israel and from whom all the other kings come and from whom Christ the Lord is descended. So Ruth is one of the ancestors of the Messiah. And one of the points of this book is, again, the notion, as I mentioned before, in the last lecture, the universality of God's love. God's love extends not just to the chosen people, as many of them thought, but to all mankind. And this is manifested by the fact that through God's providence, this a Moabite woman ends up becoming the great-grandmother of King David. Another idea here is fidelity. The daughter-in-law, Ruth, is very close to her mother-in-law, and she's faithful to her, and does not abandon her. She stays with her, goes with her back to Israel, and because of that fidelity, then she becomes the great-grandmother of King David. And there are some nuances here with regard to Ruth and Naomi that refer to the Blessed Virgin Mary in the New Testament. So it's a beautiful little book. It's not difficult to read. It's only four chapters and it takes place during the time of the judges. So that would be somewhere between 1250 and 1050 before Christ. This then leads us up to the time of Samuel and the two books of Samuel. There's two books of Samuel, one and two Samuel, and then we have one and two Kings. If you have the Douay-Rheims version, you'll find that these books are listed as one and two Samuel are called one and two Kings, and what we now have as one and two Kings are called three and four Kings, sometimes a little confusing, but now the first two books of the Kings are called the books of Samuel because they're about the prophet and the judge Samuel. And this tradition, was probably written down around 1930, during the time of David and the time of King Solomon in the 10th century before Christ. Samuel has his birth is like miraculous. It's one of these stories where his mother is elderly, she's barren, she's not been able to have any children, so she goes and prays at the shrine, and she says that if she is granted a child, a son, she will dedicate him to the service of the Lord. And so God favors her and brings it about that in her old age she conceives this child whom she names Samuel. And after he's a young boy, five or six years old, she takes him to the shrine and where there's this elderly prophet and elderly priest and she dedicates her son Samuel to the service of the Lord. And while he's there, the Lord appears to him. During the nighttime he calls him. And Samuel thinks it's the elderly man, Eli, and he runs to him three times and says, you know, I'm here. And so the old man says, no, I didn't call. It must be the Lord. So the next time the Lord calls, Samuel responds, Lord, here I am. You know, tell me what you want me to do. And so he's designated, especially chosen by God, as was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. He's chosen for a certain function in salvation history to be judge and prophet, and he's the one that God uses to single out Saul and to anoint Saul as the king of Israel and to give the people a king. Now we're dealing right after the time of the judges, which we considered in the last lecture, and there was no unification among the people of God during this time. They were divided into these many different tribes, 
And there was a cry from many of the people, give us a king. And that's what they said to Samuel. Once he was established as a prophet and judge, they said they wanted a king. They wanted to be like the other peoples. And in the book of Samuel, the first book of Samuel, you find a tendency that favors the kingship and another one that is opposed to the kingship. Because the opposed people with regard to the kingship, they maintain that once you have a king, you're going to have taxes. He's going to take your sons away from you and put them in the army. You're going to be under the control of a king. They would rather be under the control of priests and prophets and the Lord Yahweh rather than a king. But there is also a strong sense in the book of Samuel of a favorable view of the kingship. So in that context then, Samuel is directed to select Saul, who's a tall man. He's a very strong man and a great warrior, but very temperamental and very emotional. So Saul is anointed as king of all Israel. And he then, with the power of God, takes his warriors and goes and fights against the Canaanites and the Philistines. And he's a great warrior. He defeats them. But he is not consistent and he doesn't follow the law of the Lord. He violates it in various ways. And so eventually God abandons him and selects a replacement for him who is David. We're talking about a period of 40 years here. But Saul was not faithful. He consulted mediums. He went to this woman. He wanted to call up the soul of Samuel and talk to him and so forth. So God abandons Saul. And Saul, in his last battle, is wounded. And he tries to get his assistant to run the sword through him and kill him. But the man refuses to do it because he's the anointed of the Lord. So Saul puts his sword on the ground and falls on his sword and dies. And that day, also his son Jonathan is killed, the friend of David. And so the way is made free for David. During the course of this book, of the first book of Samuel, you find in the second half that Saul persecutes David. He's after him all the time because he's jealous. He's jealous of David because Samuel has anointed David to be the successor of Saul, not Saul's son. And Saul tries to destroy him, but he's not able to do that, of course. And so he dies. And then the people come to David down in Hebron, which is the southern part of Israel, and they ask him to be their king. He was seven years ruling in Hebron, and then he ruled for 33 years in Israel. That's what the scriptures tell us. This takes us down to about 970, something like that, before Christ. We're talking right around 1,000 years before Christ. That's the time of King Saul and King David. And then later on, Solomon comes on the throne around 930 at the death of David. So the second part of the first book of Samuel has to do with the rise of David, the fall of Saul, until finally Saul dies and David becomes king. And he's installed in the first part of the second book of Samuel. He's installed as king in Jerusalem of all the people. A very clever thing that David did is he went and he conquered Jerusalem, which was not conquered, did not belong to any of the tribes. And he made that his city. So Jerusalem was not connected with any of the tribes. It became the city of David because he's the one with his troops who conquered it and made that his capital. It's something like Washington, D.C. is not being part of any of the states. It's the capital of the United States, but it's not part of any particular state. And so you have something similar to that with regard to the second part of the book of Samuel. Now, the second book of Samuel 
has to do with the life of David. And here's where you have, in the first book, you have the famous story of David when he's first chosen and Goliath, which everybody's familiar with that story of killing the giant warrior with his sling and hitting him in the forehead with a rock and then going over and cutting off his head with his own sword when he was a young warrior. The second book of Samuel deals with David and his family and all his trials and tribulations. So David is in many parts of the Bible portrayed as the ideal king. But David, like many others in the Old Testament, was also a sinner. And so he sees when he's walking up on the roof of his house, he sees this beautiful woman bathing herself and out of a sense of lust, he falls in love with her and he brings her to his palace. And she is the wife of a soldier who's fighting for him out on the front, Uriah. And he commits adultery with her and she becomes pregnant. And he's concerned about this. So he has the husband come back and spend some time with the wife, presumably to live together with her. And then when he find out that she's gonna have a child, he wouldn't know that the child was fathered by David and it was not himself. But the man was loyal to him even though David plies him with a lot of wine, tries to get him drunk and go home, he will not go home because while he's at war, he does not think it proper that he should go home and be with his wife. So he goes back to the front and David, in order to solve the problem, then directs the general in charge to put Uriah up in front to make sure that he's killed because of the problem with his wife, that the wife is pregnant and he hasn't been with his wife. So as a result of that, the prophet Nathan confronts David about the story of the man who has a large number of sheep and his friend has only one and he takes the one sheep and kills it and feeds his friends. And David says that that man should die and Nathan points his finger at David and says, thou art the man. That's what you've done. You have taken this other man's wife. You've committed adultery with her. Then you murdered her husband. And as a result of that sin of David, the house of David is plagued with all kinds of evils you see the consequences of that child dies, but eventually he takes Bathsheba as his wife. Strange in God's providence, she eventually becomes the mother of another child. And who's that child? Solomon. Solomon is the one who becomes the king eventually to succeed King David in 930. But there are a lot of trials in the family. He has this beautiful daughter, Tamar, because he's got a lot of wives. And so these are half brothers and half sisters. And uh, one of his sons rapes this Tamar, who's a beautiful girl, and then her brother is much beloved by King David, and so her brother then kills Amnon, that's Absalom. Absalom kills Amnon, and then Absalom rebels against the king, he wants to replace David and take over, and David has to flee, and eventually Absalom is killed, and David comes back, and so forth. There's, there's a lot of tragedy in the family of David and this is all traced by the biblical author to his sin. That is the sin of adultery and the sin of murder. So it's not just, you know, objective history the way moderns write history. This is a theological account of God's dealings with his people and whether or not they are obedient to the covenant. David violates the covenant by committing adultery and murder. And so his family then is punished. He's punished and his family is punished. He's not killed by the Lord, but his children are taken away from him, and there's conflict among his children constantly. So that at the end then, as David gets old, there's a question of who is going to succeed him. And various sons 
try to succeed him, but Bathsheba, who's his favorite wife, Bathsheba, comes to the rescue, and she insists that it should be her son Solomon who succeeds David on the throne. And that then leads us into the two books of Kings. Before that, I might mention that the mother of Samuel is Hannah at the beginning, the first three chapters there. Those are marvelous chapters. Read those very carefully. The first three chapters of Samuel, of Hannah, who is barren, and she beseeches the Lord that she might have a son. It's kind of like Elizabeth and Zachary in the New Testament. And from that, they get St. John the Baptist, who becomes the precursor of the Lord. But once she finds out that she's pregnant, she prays and says, There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides thee. There is no rock like our God. So she's a faithful Israelite. God rewards her with the son Samuel, who dominates the history of the first two books of Samuel. So when you reach the end of the life of King David, then we come into the uh, famous books of Kings. There's book one and two Kings. This has to do with a period of about 400 years 400 years approximately, of the kings that succeeded David in Israel. Now, if you look at your map of Palestine and Israel, you'll see that there's a northern part which is called Galilee, and there's a southern part called Judea. And you had a division after Solomon between Galilee in the north and Judea in the south. So what happened is basically this that when David died, then Solomon became king. The first part of the first book of Kings, first seven chapters or so, has to do with the temple. The temple is extremely important in the Bible because it designates the place of Yahweh, the presence of the Lord God with his people. And so David wanted to build the temple. He gathered the stones and the wood and the gold and the silver to do that, but the Lord God said, no, you're not going to build a temple because you have blood on your hands. He was a bloody warrior. God reserved that for his son Solomon. So in the first two chapters, you have the account of Solomon taking over as king. David dies. Solomon immediately dedicates himself to building the temple for the Lord. And when the Lord appears to him, offers him riches and wealth and so forth, their wisdom. And Solomon chose wisdom rather than riches. And the Lord was so pleased with that, that not only did he endow Solomon with tremendous wisdom, but he also gave him everything else besides. A huge kingdom, the largest extent a kingdom ever was, lots of riches, he had multiplicity of wives, he had everything that was considered great among the peoples of those particular times. So the renown of Solomon was tremendous. His wisdom is manifested in the famous story of the two prostitutes who live together and they both have children, young babies, and one of them dies during the night and the mother of that one substitutes her baby for the living baby and takes it and then they have a big dispute so they come before Solomon and they both claim the child is theirs and nobody can resolve this to which one it belongs to. So Solomon says, well bring a sword and cut the baby in half and give half of the baby to each mother. That's the Solomonic wisdom decision. And so one of the women said, no, no, don't do that. Don't kill the baby. Give the baby to the other woman. Oh, and the other woman says, go ahead and cut it in half and give half to each. So Solomon says, then the woman who pleaded for the life of the baby must be the mother. Therefore, the child was awarded to the true mother. 
This was a sign of the wisdom of Solomon, which is manifested in the wisdom books, which come up later, like wisdom and Sirach and Proverbs and so forth. So he's kind of like the model of wisdom. So he builds the temple, magnificent temple, one of the wonders of the world, as a place for fitting worship of the Lord. But in his old age, Solomon also sins. He marries a lot of pagan wives and he allows pagan worship in Jerusalem. And so because of that, he's also punished in his children that when he dies, his son, Rehoboam, is very, very strict, very severe in his dealing with the people. And so one of his half-brothers rebels against him, Jeroboam, and takes the 10 tribes of the north as a separate country. So for 400 years, you have two countries, Israel and Judea. It's sometimes kind of confusing when you read the Bible about these two countries. They're blood relatives, but the 10 tribes of the north are a separate country, and their headquarters is in Samaria, whereas the two tribes, Benjamin and Judea, are in the south, and that's Jerusalem is their headquarters. So in the course of the Book of Kings that recounts the wars and so forth of these various kings. Now the Deuteronomic principle is operative here in dealing with these kings. They're all judged on the extent to which they adhere to the covenant, especially to the worship of the true God in the temple in Jerusalem. So the first book of Kings, after you get through with part of Jerusalem and Solomon, then the two sons they divide, you have an account of the sequence of kings. He'll tell you who the king was in Israel and then who the king was down in Judea and back and forth. Most of the kings were no good. That's about what the basis of the story is. They did not support the worship of the true God. And therefore, they're judged harshly by the author of Kings and they're punished. Over and over again, they're punished because of their failure to promote the true worship of God. It reaches such a stage that in the year 721, when the Assyrians come in, they capture Samaria and they deport all the people from the 10 tribes off into the east and they disappear pretty much from history. But the Assyrians were not able to conquer Jerusalem. The angel killed 185,000 of their warriors outside of the walls of Jerusalem. This is 701 before Christ. And so Jerusalem was saved for another 115 years or so until the Babylonians destroyed it, but eventually was destroyed in 587. So then the last part of the second book of Kings deals with the individual kings of Judea from the time of the fall of Samaria in 722 down to the fall of Jerusalem in 587. And all of these kings are judged on the basis to which they supported the worship of the true God in the temple in Jerusalem. And two of the kings are praised. One is Hezekiah, who is around 700, and the other one is Josiah, who is down closer to, let's say, around 622, 630, 620, 615, about 20 or so years before the fall of Jerusalem. These were two good ones who got rid of the idols and they brought the people back to the worship of the true God. All the kings are judged on the basis of whether or not they promoted the true worship of God. So that's the thing to look for when you read through the lives of the kings is the centralization of the cult of Yahweh in Jerusalem and the elimination of the idols. 
and the elimination of idol worship. So the last part then of the book of Kings deals with these various kings, Hezekiah and Josiah, until you get down to the time of the last kings, Jehoiakim, who's the son of Josiah, and then Zedekiah, who's the last one before the Babylonians finally capture and destroy it. You have also the cycles in the first and second book of Kings of the two great prophets, Elijah and Elisha, who are wonder workers to perform many miracles and so forth, and they're constantly rebuking the kings for not observing the covenant and for being involved with the pagans and so forth. So these prophets are kind of like types of Jesus who will come later and to perform many miracles of raising people from the dead and curing people of their illnesses and sicknesses and so forth. So these two prophets, Elijah and Elisha, you find them in the first and second book of Kings. As I say, they're kind of models or types of Christ who will come later as the Messiah. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.